And here we stand, just days after a riotous mob thought they could use violence to silence the will of the people, to stop the work of our democracy, to drive us from this sacred ground. It did not happen. It will never happen. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Not ever. The words of President Joseph R. Biden Jr. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at where our republic stands after the transfer of power. And then we'll wrap with our hot take section, our Guardian of the Week, and finish with some final thoughts. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. Patrick, is it really a new day? I think it is. I really do. Uh, I There's still a heck of a lot of work to be done. We are not out of the woods. But I think the new day was embodied by the poetry of Amanda Gorman. Um, that just blew me away. Yeah. Uh, right. The, I mean, the, this young 22 year old who's who just comes out there, who, by the way, had a speech impediment. Did you know that? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, know that. I just learned that, that she had a speech impediment, uh, which is, a, you know, a theme with President Biden here. But in her poem, The Hill We Climb, uh, there's a passage from it that I, I, I want to read um, that I think really encapsulates where we are and where we need to go. And it starts with what was a, you know, everybody, I think, knows it as a reference to a song in Hamilton. Yeah. But it's actually lifted from a favorite scripture quotation uh, that George Washington used quite a bit. Poor George Washington not getting as much play these days at the top yeah. of our show. Yeah, so he's going to get he's going to get play. He'll get a little he'll get a little tip of the cap now. Good. Yeah, yeah, because um, you know, the, and and most famously, this this first phrase that that was in her poem here uh, was in a letter that he wrote to the Jewish community in Newport, Rhode Island, at Toro mm -hmm. Synagogue, which I know Ian, you're very familiar with. Yes, I am. Uh, right, uh, and basically saying that you know this is America. This is there is space for everyone here. And we need to respect that everyone has a space here. And so she starts. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to her own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promise to Glade, the hill we climb if only we dare. It's because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Mm. We've seen a forest that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. This effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith, we trust for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. And then the lines that really get to what happened over the past couple of weeks. This is the era of just redemption. We feared at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour. But within it, we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we asked, 
How could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? Yeah. Yeah, you know you did that pretty well, too. Good job, Patrick. <laughs> when, you, when you said you were going to do this. I have a good said, teacher. Well, I, 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 I said, you're doing that one. Because uh, I did not want to step into the shoes of that amazing young lady. Um, what, what a remarkable uh what a remarkable, what remarkable thoughts that she shared and so beautifully done in every single way. And, and so that is your, so yeah. when I ask this question again, is this really a new day based on Amanda Gorman? You say yes. Yes. Because, and, and, and just the visual of her there too, yeah. clearly a young lady, clearly an image of the future. And I juxtapose that with prior poets who have spoken at, um, these inaugurations for, for Clinton and, and for Obama, Maya Angelou, for, for instance, mm -hmm. um, who spoke, of course, so eloquently. But Maya Angelou was kind of that encapsulation, that thought that, you know, when Obama became president, there was this sense in the country that oh, our country has finally matured. We've turned the corner. We've, you know, we've achieved what we're supposed to achieve. And of course, we were wrong. And, uh, you know, we found out within weeks of Obama becoming uh, president that uh, the, these forces of evil were, were going to do everything to, to stop that. But Maya Angelou represented everything that got us to that point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and what we're, where we thought we were at that time. Uh, Amanda Gorman represents where we need to go. Yeah. And I thought that was just, uh, just an amazing juxtaposition there and, and just, just absolutely a perfect set of setting of the tone there. I appreciate that. I really do. Um, you know, there was a moment, uh, my, my children are obviously still at home, schooling from home, and I'm watching the inauguration events, and there's a moment that I just want to talk about um, that I saw that was very telling to me and was my first big emotional jump of the day. Uh, it's when, and I don't know if you caught this, Patrick, when uh, Biden and his wife, when Dr. Biden and President Biden, interesting to say, arrived at the Capitol and were received by Amy Klobuchar and Roy Blunt. Did you happen to catch that moment? No, I did not see that. Okay, well, let me just let me just set the tone for you here of the new day. Roy Blunt, who is a senator from Missouri, same place that Josh Hawley, not Noah Hawley, who I called him on our last episode. I, I give myself mea culpa on that one. Um, Roy Blunt and Amy Klobuchar, who were the head of the Rules Committee for the inauguration, received them. They both did a fine job in their speeches. When Biden arrived... Blunt put his hand around his back and hugged him and kept that hand there for about six seconds. And it was sort of weird <laughs> and out of place, but it showed a connection that Blunt really wanted to make and the closeness between these two men and the hope for us of what our country could be. I don't think that's why Blunt was doing it, but that's what I saw it as. Then there was the moment where they start to go over up the steps they turn, they start to go up the steps, and the the uh, officers that are there all turn at the same moment as he steps on the first step and salute him. I was in my office, where I'm seated now, and I broke into riotous applause and screaming, oh, yeah, because in that one moment, it went, oh, as you have written down here, there's a new person running this shop. There's a new sheriff in town, and Biden just strode up those steps. And it re I felt it in that moment. I went, oh, there's a new person that we're saluting. And that changes everything. Yeah. Yeah, it, re it really does. Um, and I think, though, 
you know, what we're looking at that and that that personal relationship that Biden can bring to the table. Yes. With with a Republican there and uh, has been caught up in all these calls to unity, which was clearly a theme of his inaugural speech. But I think there are different definitions of what he may have meant by unity. And that's what I, I kind of found fascinating in this speech is that, you know, his unity is rejecting, and this is, these are his quotes, uh, we must reject a culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. Um, we face an attack on democracy and on truth. We have a raging virus, growing inequity, the sting of systemic racism, a climate in crisis, America's role in the world. And he was listing them as challenges though that we face that would, yeah. any single one of them would be more than enough. <laughs> um, but, it was the sting of systemic racism. He wasn't saying that, oh, we have to examine racism or you know, we have to look at ways of, of making life more equal. I was getting the sense that he was kind of laying down a marker of saying, these are sins, you know, using a, a terminology that, that, that he would use as, as a Roman Catholic, um, that, that these are sins. And you have to absolve yourself of these sins. You have to atone for these sins. You can't just sweep them under the table in the name of unity. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, one of the my favorite follows on on Twitter is uh, a, a playwright um, who masquerades as, as Richard Nixon. Um, I don't know and, this person. Yeah. Uh, and he's, oh, man, Justin Schwerin, I think uh, his name is. And I, I should follow. He's, he's a very interesting guy, uh, but he's been he's basically been giving voice to Richard Nixon on Twitter for the past few years. And, and you should follow it. Dick underscore Nixon. Um, because it is like you're hearing, uh, uh, Richard Nixon from beyond the grave. Um, but one of the things that he wrote was that Biden's speech was, and this is his quote, a call to join the righteous and a warning that he has limits. And I heard it the same way too, that unity isn't just, okay, we'll forget everything that happened and sweep it under the table. That unity, in Biden's view, is much like unity in Abraham Lincoln's view. What's right is right, and you've got to be on the right side of history, and we're going to unify behind that. And anybody who's unwilling to do that by manipulating facts, by denying reality, and denying the systematic problems that we have, starting with racism, it, we're not going to unify with, we're going to unify against. And the GOP's reaction, which you put in here, uh, this Rand Paul quote, much of the speech is thinly veiled innuendo calling us white supremacists, calling us racists, calling us every name in the book, calling us people who don't tell the truth. Well, um, as other people have mentioned, um, if you feel that way watching that speech, you're probably right. Yeah. You're probably right. That's probably what you're being called because that's probably how you act. Because if you didn't act that way, you would not take that personally. But clearly you do. Right? Right. And I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that was really the message he was sending. Um, and if anybody who, you know, who would look back at Joe Biden, you know, when he started his career uh, 40 years ago, or even as vice president 10 years ago, uh, would probably say to themselves that they would never expect this kind of stance 
from Joe Biden, that Joe Biden's stance, would, uh, default mechanism would always be, okay, let's figure out a way to compromise. Let's figure out a way to work together. But I think the distinction that we see in President Biden than we saw in any other incarnation of the politician Joe Biden in the past is an understanding that there's a difference between compromising on policy and compromising on principles. Yeah. And we're yeah. at upstage in America where our principles are under threat. Our values are under threat. And he has to define them and draw a line in the sand. At least that's what I, I walked away with. It. It's going to be interesting because that's not been his MO his entire political career. But I have a sense that his his faith and his belief in humanity mm -hmm. uh, has been has been shaken by what he's seen over the past few years, and that has changed who he is. At least I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting, and maybe I'm just hoping too much. No, I but mean at least I get that to, sense. Look back to the 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 incident that made him decide to run for office this time. It was Charlottesville. That was the day that he decided when the former president came out and said there are good people on both sides. Biden said, yeah, OK, we can't do that. That's not who we are. I mean, he kept coming back to this idea of this is who we are. This is not who we are. And it's the, you know, our better angels, quoting Lincoln, quoting Bill Bradley also um, from New Jersey, who I remember in 2000 when he was running against Gore in the Democratic primary, just, you know, he's, he was better angels this, better angels that. And you know, Biden talking about the better angels of our nature. The world is watching this. The world yep. was watching to waiting to see how how do we handle our mess? You know, we've been involved in everyone else's mess for ever since we became a world power. And now here we are in the most uh, challenging time that we've had, certainly since the Civil War. I think we can I think we can say that with the virus, with with the the challenge to the, our very republic. The world was watching on that day. Um, and now as a, as, a, as a person who, you know, I've been in the acting world for many, many years, and I took a sabbatical after 2018 to work to help um, save our republic. And I've enjoyed that job. And one of the jobs that I'm doing now is I work with political leaders on their communication skills. It's actually sort of the backbone of the work that I do. So I was watching this inauguration speech, and I was watching it very carefully and thinking to myself, please, because I've seen... President Biden give fine speeches. I've seen President Biden give bad speeches. I've even seen President Biden give good speeches. As this speech started out, if you watch it again, the first three or four minutes came out way too hot. And I sat there and was like, come on, just talk to the camera. You don't need, you're not, even though you're at the big place, you're not speaking to the big people. Nice and easy, calm it down. And he, he, First three minutes, I was like, nope, oh man, you're blowing it, we're blowing it, we're blowing it. And then he said, listen, folks. And as soon as he said, listen, folks, he locked in and gave what I thought was his best speech that he's ever given. Um, it was perfectly done in the moment. I give, the, I give it a, a very, I give it an A minus, which is about as high as I, I would give a speech. I give Obama an A for the 2004 convention speech, but Biden, I give him an A minus on that speech, which is a really, really great grade. I was very happy. I was very, so just proud to be an American in that moment and hopeful for our future. Did you have a, a feeling about the speech? Yes. I, I, same way. I, in fact, my wife had said, uh, and made some mention, well, it's, it's still not Obama in terms of the, you know, his ability and, 
the style, the cadence, and 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 the words and the and the rhetoric. I said, yeah, it's not, and it's not time for that kind of speech. It's time for this kind of speech. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's the right speech for the right time. And you're, I, I, I didn't feel that same way. I, um, in the first bit of the speeches you did, I, I kind of was there with the speech almost right away. Part of it was because I was thinking of many of his campaign speeches where his modulation just went all over the place. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Like sure. He would just start talking at one, one level and then just suddenly flip to a different level. Yeah. Um, really bad speech making skills. So having that in the back of my mind and then seeing him come out, he was nowhere sure. nearly as hot as, as he no, had no, been as a campaign. No, no, not that bad, but, but you know, yeah. this is, this yeah, is, yeah, no, I say, yeah, this well, is a huge moment, right? This is going to be watched as long as there are people this speech will be watched. There's no other speech of Biden's that will be watched as often as his inauguration speech moving forward. Let's hope that there's not a, a, a speech that he has to give during his administration. Um, but, you know, I was looking at it because I do work with Democratic leaders saying, whoever's coaching him, you better be as good as me in this moment. And in the first couple of minutes, I went, you're not as good as me in this moment. Sorry to speak so boldly. But then he really did settle in beautifully. And I tip my hat to whoever worked with him on it because he does not have that Obama natural ability to communicate. And yet he did on that day. There's also a little moment that I wanted to talk about. If you caught this, where um, when the Biden family came down the, 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 after, you know, everyone's walking through and we see them, it's interesting to see who holds hands with their, with their wives and who doesn't hold the hands with their wives as they go forward and watching Joe Biden and Joe Biden hold those hands and know that they are a team coming in. And you, you marry that with the Donald Trump moment where he turns around to Melania when he was being inaugurated and she smiles and then turns, it became a, a very famous gif uh, later on. But there was a moment where the Biden family comes down and all of the Biden grandchildren are walking and Michelle Obama, who is uh, just, oh my God, opens her arms to these children and they all just run right over to her and hug them. And she hugs all of them because she's known them since they were babies. She's watched them all grow up. They were at every Easter egg roll. They were at everything in the White House for all those years. It was wonderful, wonderful to see for me. Yeah, I mean, just so much of this is different. <laughs> it's yeah, so it's, much. It's of it it. And, and, the, and those little things matter. Yeah, because it's and this is one of the things that I can't understand is that I, I know some folks who were have been Trump supporters and they talk about how they can't stand Joe Biden. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I can get why you might disagree with Joe Biden or whatever, sure. but just at a basic human level. Yeah. Even if you think he's, even if you think he's still he's a social politician, he's, he's going to let AOC, yeah. blah, 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 all that stuff. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. Even, and even if you think he's still, you know, he's a 40 year slimy politician and he's still like, you know, a politician just at a visceral human level. If you say, I can't stand Joe Biden, I can't stand the sight of Joe Biden. That says a hell of a lot about your own lack of humanity. Because at the end of the day. And this is, I think, what's is so surprising about 74.2 million, just to be clear, 74.2 million people who voted for President, for, former President Trump. What What's surprising is, sure, there's the 45 million people who are just on the res, off the reservation 
I, I'm going to say that. I, I, I think that's fair to say. Who who will who are willing to storm the Capitol? But the other people, you know, when we're raised as as young people, we're taught to be kind and to be thoughtful and not to look out for ourselves first. I think that's that you know the sort of golden rule of look out for others. He has this moment that um, David Brooks quoted in his very interesting article that came out shortly before we're doing this again, noon on Friday. So that's where we are. Um, He said that his favorite line from the speech, from the inaugural speech was this. And it, it touched me very much and very memorable. Here's the thing about life. There's no accounting for what fate will deal you. Some days you need a hand. There are other days when we are called to lend a hand. And the Beau Biden underneath this whole experience is the guiding force. He believed that it would be Beau Biden standing there on that day. You know, we see stories of sons avenging their fathers, right? That's, that's as old as Game of Thrones and, you know, Shakespeare. The, the son will avenge the death of the father. Here we had a situation where the father was stepping in for what he believed for the spot that he believed his son belonged that is what drives his every day and you know if we say that the character of the president is the character of the nation i think we can agree that the character of our nation has grown just over the course of this last week and what we've seen now where we need to talk about is the state of the republic Mm-hmm. And we'll get to the sort of where 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 we think the patient is maybe at the end, but what we really need to talk about is the Senate and how Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell will find their way forward to helping this nation that is starving for cooperation, help, and change. What do you see? Well, obviously um – the our thoughts about Joe Biden's relationship with Mitch McConnell and the impact that will have on his presidency has changed since uh, January fifth, when the Democrats won uh, won the won the Senate in Georgia. Um, so uh, Mitch McConnell is now the minority leader um, rather than majority leader. So he's not setting the agenda, which is that, a difference, which, which is a big difference, and is in fact will get to that in a second when we talk about impeachment. But uh, I think it's important. And and the thing that I was worried about all along before this was that the old Joe Biden, the Joe Biden who was willing to look past, um, you know, disagreements would also look past fundamentally wrongheaded decisions uh, that folks have made, particularly McConnell because of his personal relationship with McConnell, that he would look past the fact that McConnell has been the partial has, has been one of the architects of Trumpism, whether he, he intended it to be or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he is responsible. Fair. He, he carries a responsibility for Trumpism, uh, existing because of the groundwork that he laid for that. Um, so he's going to have to deal with him in a different way because now, um, McConnell controls the minority, but, with the question of the filibuster, that means he still has some considerable power there. Uh, so, I mean, I don't. I think it's better in the end that the Democrat for for Joe Biden that at least for two years that the Democrats control Congress, so they can try to get something done. Um, I don't think I think it's better than it would have been if 
uh, McConnell had been the majority leader. I don't know whether you agree or disagree with that. Well, okay, okay. Here, I, I, uh, let me say this. I agree. I, I certainly was rooting for uh, Ossoff and Warnock on that night for very many, many, many reasons. Um, and can I just, just, uh, I'm gonna, can I just interject? Sorry to sure. interrupt you. Just interject one image: the image of Vice President Kamala Harris swearing in. Um, a African-American, Latino, and a Jew, <laughs> a Jewish person, as senators. Yeah. That was interesting, too, because, you know, you had Barbara Boxer standing behind uh, our new senator. Diane Feinstein. I'm sorry, not Barbara Boxer. Barbara yeah. Boxer's on my mind because of what happened on January 6th. Yeah. Um, and then you had Cory Booker. You didn't have anyone from Georgia to stand behind the new senator from Georgia. Because, because there, were, there were two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like, all right, well, like, you know, it's a, it's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's, it's a new life for me. We're feeling good. I mean, it really, it was, it was, a, it, it, a, a image but I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. That's okay. Um, so there was, there is a piece of me and there was a piece of me and I expressed this on the show that said there is some upside to McConnell holding power in the Senate to truly find a way to work together, right? Because now how things are, you could easily see reconciliation past this $1.9 trillion bill, right? This COVID bill for $1.9 trillion. But, but months months in the future. Right. I mean, so, so that could easily happen. And because the Democrats are in control of the Senate, we that can get done. Is that the best way for the country to legislate just a continuation of the same problem let me let me just uh, let me just explain for, for folks who don't understand why we mentioned reconciliation there there's a process in in congress called budget reconciliation uh according to the rules of the senate that does not require um a 60 vote agreement to proceed with it only requires a majority to agree to proceed so it can get around the filibuster by taking all this the, the, these funds for uh, uh, COVID relief and putting them into a budget reconciliation measure. The problem is that you can't do a budget reconciliation measure anytime you want to. It has to be at certain particular times, which is why if they did it that way, it would defer that package uh, for a number of months. Which is problematic, and it's it, for sure problematic because it needs to be handled quickly. But from a, from a wider scope, right, and looking, pulling back, what would be more valuable to get that $1.9 trillion into the into America, which is desperately needed, or for the Democrats and the Republicans to find a way forward? The Problem Solvers Caucus that has been in the House and working in the House is now expanding to the Senate, where you have 16 leaders from both sides of the aisle who are working together to try to fight Republicans and eight Democrats. If that were the path forward, you understand what I'm. You, you yep. understand the, the angle I'm taking here. Yep. That if McConnell was, but but then McConnell could still scuttle everything and sort of say, yeah, I still don't care because I'm the one who's got to bring it up, and I'm not going to bring it up even if you have 65 votes. Um, moving this forward, I still don't want to do it. So you know, I'm 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 of two minds about it, but it is a thought that I just wanted to poke out there. That you know, d- the magic of Biden, hopefully, is in finding a way forward together. Well, this and is this yeah, takes away a little bit of the opportunity, I think. 
Yes. I, I, well, takes away or gives the opportunity. It takes away, I think. I, mean, I, I think. I think that now the Democrats are emboldened because they have the majority, right? So the, you have the, the left wing of the Senate who's going to say, look, we could just get rid of the filibuster right now, change the rules of the filibuster, and then we can do whatever we want. But yeah. see, even if you do that, then all of a sudden Joe Manchin comes into play, cinema comes into play, you know, Mark yeah. Kelly, who's up for re-election in two years, comes into play, and you might have a mess on your hands there as well. So for me, the best way forward is to find a way to bring Republicans and Democrats together to make a bill that everybody feels good about that's, and that will help the country. That's the best way forward, but based on history uh, you know, historical evidence. Um, I don't think it's an argument for why it, it might have been a good idea for Mitch McConnell to remain as majority leader. Okay, I get because it. The, the, I, the second he said, yeah, we're not doing that, then it's over. It's over for two years uh, for, for Joe Biden. So I don't think yeah, that's a good okay. idea. I think, I think having the majority, and in fact, having a slim majority where you just can't count on the Democrats voting in lockstep, but you do have to work with Manchin and Cinema and Kelly and others is a is a much better situation to be okay. in because Good. you still have to compromise, but you you don't have somebody who has shown through their entire career to ruthlessly put the short term gains of of their party ahead of policy, which is what Mitch McConnell has done. Beautiful. Now the, the, the other question that I I have is if you remember during the uh, initial. Um, meetings around Obamacare is that Obama had um, uh, uh, Blair had had all the all the leadership uh, of the Congress come over Republican and Democrat come over to Blair House, which is across the street from the the White House, Where and hold a big meeting around the table. Yeah, right. right. And so Obama had this meeting and basically said, "Okay, we're here. We all agree that healthcare needs to be fixed. That there's a problem with healthcare." We know that there's been problems in the past. This is not, a, he didn't say it in these words, but he basically said this is not a bitch session. This is a session where you put uh, solutions on the table. And guess what every Republican did as they went around the table? Bitched about the past. Obama had no control over that situation. Um, and, and, and basically they kept going and going and, and, and assuming at some point I think the phrase w w was that I read from somebody is that they assumed at some point the fever would break among Republicans. And of course it never did. No, it never did. Right. So, <clears throat> so based on that evidence, we don't think it would. So in this case, I say, yes, give this group, this, this sweet 16 as, as some have called them in, in the Senate, uh, a chance to prove themselves, but you've got a, put a reasonable stop date on them to deliver before you say we're going nuclear. And David David Brooks, again, in that same article, there's two articles to commend to you today. I say commend because Tony Kornheiser, who became a friend of mine a couple of years ago, you does it says it all the time on his podcast. I commend this article to you, the David Brooks op-ed. And there's also a Politico um, article that I, I – Patrick, I don't know if you got a chance to read it. Uh, can you – if you did, do you have the title of it there? It's called it's, Enemies, a Love Story. Right, and it's a, it's a very long article. And the article that I've been waiting to read – on the history of the relationship between President Biden and Minority Leader McConnell. I enjoyed saying both of those, to be honest. I just want to say that. Um, but what David Brooks, who is a center-right Republican op-ed columnist for The New York Times, a personal favorite of my mom's as well, and my, my late father, um, what he said 
today, which surprised me, was if the Republicans don't get on board and the filibuster. And I went, whoa, if you've got that, you know, because Manchin's the block on that. Cinema's the block on that. Kelly's the block on that. You've got David Brooks calling for the end of the filibuster if the Republicans don't play ball. I don't know. That changes things a little bit, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think it changes it quite a bit. And that's, but as as I said, is that you have to have, you have to be realistic and just you know, put a deadline on when yeah. this team has to deliver or else you're going to have to work it a different, an entirely different way. And in terms of fairness, there's no question that the Democrats have the right to do what they want to do after the shenanigans of the Republicans over the course of these many years. But so now we can talk directly about something that is in the news as we went on air, which is the impeachment trial has now been set for next week. Is that correct, Patrick? Right. So the, the uh, article of impeachment will be delivered to the Senate on Monday. Wow. Which means they're going to have to get started by Thursday, I think. No, no. By, by the next day, they start. Oh. So, you know, there was some talk, and I'm curious what you thought about, I guess it, it's not worth us discussing anymore, but whether it was better for the Democrats or Republicans if it waited longer, but it looks like there's not going to be any wait time. What do you think of that? Um, I think that makes sense uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, Mc Mitch McConnell wanted to wait. So right there, that's a sign that that's probably not a good idea. Well, <laughs> yes, unless he's, unless, unless. Un <laughs> unless he's playing the you know he's 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 giving you the double cross saying please wait because he wants it to come up right now but the reality is in coming up later what they could do is the republicans could say what's the point why are we even dealing with this he's out of office he's shut up he's not doing anything let's just leave things be well we're not going to have that opportunity now because right. it is still close enough that we can you can smell the terror in the air still from january 6th yeah. so i'm actually I'm, I'm pretty good with this choice yeah yeah i think so too i think we need to see the you know the, the national guards still need to be patrolling the the, the capital we still be, need to be reminded what exactly happened there this is not just some you know demonstration uh that went violent this was an, an insurrection an attack an insurrection an attack on an equal to stop a co-equal branch of government from fulfilling their constitutional duty it was to undermine the constitution plain and simple this was not just simply i disagree with this policy so i'm going you know we're going to have a violent protest um so having it making sure that that's still fresh in your mind. And I think this is what McConnell wanted to do. Let's make it fresh. Let's say, you know, if, if Trump can can keep himself quiet for the next yeah. three weeks, then you can say, eh, he's not a, you know, he's not a danger to us. He's not going to resurrect. Yeah, because not remember, you're not kicking, you know, when you convict him of impeachment, you can't kick him out of office. He's already gone. But the purpose of convicting him of impeachment is to hold the second vote, which is that he can't hold federal office ever again. Which McConnell actually might want there are senators in the senate who actually might not want him to run again because they yeah. want to run and if trump decides that he still has the ability to run if the former president has the ability to run he will likely he will and he would get the nomination but more importantly he stays the main power broker in the republican party going into 2022 it is a mess for republicans this yeah. is a mess of a situation because you you can't win for losing Right. Because also yeah. what's positive is they now need to go on record and they don't want to have to go on record because they're going to have to give him a pass. That's what I would expect. 
I don't think they're going to get the 17. But then the people who vote to acquit will have on record that there was an insurrection at our Capitol where people tried to kill members of Congress and the vice president of the United States. And we're going to give him a pass. We're going to give them a pass for that for because we don't want a nasty tweet, which is no longer even available. <laughs> so. We'll yeah. see. I wanted to yeah, say but one they're, more thing. But they're really Sorry, worried. Patrick, you know, I really have one more thought that I want to say before we yeah. move on. Go ahead. But uh, yeah, so they're really worried about um, you know his presence in 2022. Um, what we have found, and we found this right now, recently in Georgia, when Donald Trump is not on the ballot but is still a presence, that some of his own supporters stay home, but his opponents still come out. Interesting. And that's why, and that's why um, these two. Democrats um, were behind in the November count, but won in the January runoff in Georgia. Good to have. And we've us. seen that, and we saw that in the 2018 midterms. Mm -hmm. um, so, if Donald Trump is still a presence, this is what Mitch McConnell is worried about in 2022. It, it makes it that much harder for them to win back the Senate. Though I think the Democrats, unlike 2008, where they were sort of like, hey, Obama won, we're good, we got the Senate, we got the House, let's just keep this rolling. I think that the the Democratic Party is alive and not going anywhere. And they're going to they're going to be ready in 2022. I do not think <clears throat> that there's going to be a moment where they take their foot off the gas. But I, do, I want one uh, thought that I have um, that I want to mention is, is this was a I guess it was a tweet from uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, who is opposed to this. And his statement was, the key word here is precedent. If it happens to former President Trump, that precedent will be applied to future former presidents. Presidents, a bad idea. A good idea. No, it's a good, yeah. The, the, the bad idea is saying that the precedent is that you can get away with inciting yes. insurrection as president of the United <laughs> oh, States. John that is the precedent that we should be worried about. You know, John, John Cornyn, poor John, but I'm going to say poor John Cornyn the same way all of the guys that I talked about over the course of this show, Senator John Thune, remember I told you he was standing in the back looking uncomfortable behind Mitch McConnell all those times. Remember I talked about that. Right, yep. John Cornyn, when, in, when Trump was running for office in 2016, really uncomfortable. And now Cornyn's kind of, he's stuck. He doesn't know which way to go. I mean, and, but, but like Thune, all these guys, Sass, they are coming out. They are stepping up. And I want to make one last point because I, I don't think this point has been made or I haven't heard it made. Our nation was built by the founding, the founding people, the founding fathers, the founding mothers, I'm going to say, too. I think the women had something to do with it because they were they were right there with it. And if not then, certainly now we need them now more than ever. They set it up where checks and balances. Well, here we had a situation where the executive branch was clearly off the rails, period. The legislative branch was clearly off the rails, period. The judicial branch stayed on the rails, and that was the guardrail, were the judges. Because if those judges did not slap Trump down at every, except for the one, which was a nothing, at every turn, there's nothing that says that Donald John Trump would not still be the president of the United States, because nothing in the legislative branch would have stopped them. Mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my opinion. Yep. And so here's to the judges, yo. Yep. Okay, let's oh, move on to. That's what's important. 
Um, <clears throat> but I have some polling out. Yes, uh, let's move uh, on before we, we hit to our hot takes that I, that I want to mention. Um, so, I, and I've talked about this a lot, but we're doing, continue to do more work on uh, the presence of authoritarianism and authoritarian inclinations in the American electorate. Um, as I mentioned, this was work that I started a couple years ago. Uh, working with uh, John Dean uh, from of Watergate fame, uh, and it appeared in his book that came out last year, Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. Uh, one of the conditions I had in doing the research for him was that I get to keep all the research and continue to use it. And so I did a follow-up survey with some of these folks uh, back in December, so after the election but before the, before the insurrection. And if you go to our, our website, mammoth.edu slash polling, uh, it's monmouth.edu slash polling uh, and look for uh, our, uh, I think released it on January 19th, um, authoritarianism, you know, in the American electorate among Trump followers. And the key thing that I want to point out is everything that we've been discussing right now is based on the fact that you couldn't have this happen unless there was a critical mass of followers who were willing to go along with this. And the idea is that there will always be a a certain percentage of of the electorate who is inclined to go along with authoritarianism. It's just that they're they're fear based. Um, they're afraid of other groups. Um, it's just a psychological thing, and there's a, there's a lot of them out there. The difference is, and and we found this among Trump. There are two types of Trump supporters: those who are authoritarian and those who are not. The difference is when those authoritarians are basically given their their points of view are given credibility in society and credibility by leadership. And that's what we've happened. This is why I hold uh, Mitch McConnell um, to account even more than I hold Donald Trump to account for what's happened is because it's the ones who have allowed this to happen, uh, who have allowed this to take hold. And what we've found is certainly these authoritarians are, are, are willing to throw constitutional norms out the window. They don't even understand them. And this is the, this is the threat is that they don't understand the fact that they are anti-democratic. And they will run around with their flags, claiming that they're defending the Constitution while they're in the very act of undermining the Constitution. Uh, the problem, though, is when that infects a larger proportion of the public, when that becomes acceptable. That's what we are finding is a problem. The only way to dial that back is when leadership in society, leadership in government, takes a firm stand that this is not right. And that's the problem what we have with these two-faced Republicans, these John Cornyns. This is not, I mean, we, we have this problem with the Josh Holies and the Ted Cruz's and the Matt Getzes and, and, and all those folks. They are the authoritarians. The problem of the infection comes from the John Cornyns and the Mitch McConnells, the people who should know better but decide that they're going to use it for their own short-term game without realizing that they're allowing this cancer to spread. So if you want to, I, I, this, this is kind of an academic study, but I, I, the write-up that I did was uh, basically in layperson's terms, so you can read that. Uh, I encourage you to go to that, to understand that just because Trump is out of office, that there is something that has been ignited in the public that has reached a critical mass that we basically need to reduce. And the only way we can reduce that is by what basically Joe Biden called for is a recognition that there are systemic sins in our system and that we all must, uh, you know, atone for them and, uh, and acknowledge them. Okay. Well, thank you. I 
the, a third thing to commend you to uh, this week. All right, so now let's move on to our hot take segment. Uh, we'll take 90 seconds to discuss some other topics in the news. And when you hear this sound, it's time to move on to the next topic. We got a lot of them this week, which is super fun. It's going to be a long show, but it's a fun show. So we're going to start, uh, Patrick, with a conversation about the parade and the fireworks, the whole production. What were your thoughts? Uh, I think this production was great, and I'm not surprised. Um, after watching the Democratic National Convention and how they pulled that off, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was the same people who put this together. Uh, the uh, If you watched, there was that parade in the middle of the afternoon. People who watched it, was there was the opportunity to give each of the 50 states a shot at, at their moment in the sun. And that was great. Uh, the the celebration at night was terrific. Uh, the, uh, the That whole thing with um, uh, the reading of, of the different inaugural dress. I mean, just the whole thing. And then ending with those fireworks. It was those just, fireworks. I, you know, we I've got children. I've got an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old. And my wife and I have taken them to Disney World, Disneyland. We're living in California and Disney World now that we're back on the East Coast. There has never been fireworks like those fireworks. My goodness gracious me. I mean, they were I, I went back and rewatched them again mm-hmm. and just watching Biden's face. Jill Biden was having an interesting reaction to them, sort of like, like, oh, my goodness. And Biden just stood there and yeah. watched. And you could see him sort of saying maybe saying a prayer for hope um, for what he could bring for this country. But it was a beautiful moment. It was a beautiful night. Uh, went back to a lot of the same hosts from the Democratic Convention. Um, I thought it was a great, a great evening overall in terms of production from the morning all the way through to the end of the night it was the most meaningful inauguration day that I can ever remember. Yep. I agree with you there. Yeah. All right. Uh, how about that moment uh, in that uh, evening uh, um, uh, show where the three former presidents were standing there at the World War II Memorial giving advice? Well, that, that was something, wasn't it? That was that was so beautiful, and just having you know that sometimes when you don't have something, you realize how important what you have is, right? So not having the former president at the inauguration, seeing Mike Pence there, um, seeing George Bush there, uh, walking down again, holding hands with Laura, uh, seeing Bill Clinton and Hillary not holding hands, uh, and seeing Barack and Michelle Obama holding hands was was very uh, indicative, I thought, of and the importance of the three of them coming together and the absolute tip of the cap to George Bush for standing there and 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 meaningfully saying that the republic is more important than party and making sure that he got that point across. Uh, it was it was beautiful to watch. What were your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, it's just just a, a recognition of how important uh, this all is, uh, that this transfer of power and how just unique it is. Um, as as Ronald Reagan said in his 81 um, inaugural address, is that in many countries, this would be considered a miracle that we just do this. And it almost obviously almost didn't happen here. Uh, but that reinforcement of those three presidents from different parties just standing there and saying, we're all behind this new president because we're all Americans. And, and standing in that that that, that memorial to just, yeah. just to, these are the sacrifices that we've made as a country. Yeah, it's bigger. We're bigger than, and watching the personal interaction between these people, um, watching uh, Obama, watching Obama and Clinton sort of deal with each other and watch everyone deal with it. It, it was fascinating to watch. 
Yep. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, um, you know, this was also seemed to be the moment where the mantle of, you know, who is controls the Democratic Party and 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 that ideology has passed from Obama to Biden. Did you get that feeling? I very much did. And there's a moment that happened during the campaign where I'm sure everyone remembers where I think it was down in Georgia. Barack Obama goes into a basketball court and hits a three point shot and runs. out. It's what I do. It's what I do. Right. And if you watch carefully, you'll see that Joe Biden is behind him very much the second banana during Biden's race. And I don't know if I mentioned it on the show, but I certainly noted it personally and sort of thought that's weird. You know, it's weird because everywhere Obama goes, Obama is the king. Well, as you watch Joe Biden walk down the center, that 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 center carpeting that we saw, Barack Obama put out his fist for a fist bump. And the way that Joe Biden fist bumped him back was for the very first time, I am sure, since President Obama became President Obama, Joe Biden was not number two. In that one moment, President Biden was number one. And I think that that relationship is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch moving forward. They were close. They they enjoyed each other. In Obama's book, apparently, there's talk of his frustration with Biden at different times during, while they were working together. But now Biden is the dad. Mm-hmm. Biden is the most important figure in our country. What did you think? Did you? Yeah, did I you think know I that? think. Yeah, I think Biden now wears the the moral mantle of leadership for this, for his party. Uh, he, he has taken that from 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 Obama. That's it's now his. He, he he's in control of that. Do you remember when I told you uh, drums? Those drums. Yeah, drums, those drums. Drums. Okay. We'll come back. Gonna, to that. uh, that's on. why it's a it's a, they're hot topics. Okay, so moving on to Kamala Harris. And the second gentleman, what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, second gentleman, Doug. Um, uh, It was, you know, just the the visual imagery of just seeing that as our second couple, the first second gentleman, as was referenced many times. And uh, his statement, he made a statement later about the, 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 the debt that he owes to all the spouses of vice presidents before him. Uh, that was just great. But I thought, you know, when we were watching the fireworks, you know, Joe, Joe, Joe and, uh, Joe and Joe Biden were at the white house, but they, uh, but Kamala and Doug were at Lincoln Memorial Mm -hmm. and they caught a shot of him where he was looking at the fireworks and he just like, (laughs) looked like such a little kid that just in in, in such joy at, at this moment. And I thought this is just a great visual. It was, and and we cannot uh, we cannot not mention the history being made by Kamala Harris being the very first woman elected to national office, and how important that is to women, to girls, to boys, to all of us around the country. The fact that she's also the first African American in that position, the fact that she's the first East Asian in that position, you know, Kamala Harris I, I, is to be. Uh, and I think she's done a wonderful job of of understanding that she's number two, and she's had a great leader in that watching President Biden. And you had a moment, I had a moment watching those two where I said, she's going to be inaugurated one day. You know, she's she's going to she's going to watch. She's going to learn. She's going to grow. Uh, it, but but what a remarkable moment and day for young girls 
around the country to realize that they too, you know, the the pain of of Hillary Clinton losing and not being able to break that glass ceiling, and to see that a, a ceiling just got broken was another another yep. wonderful yep. part of that day, and not to be underestimated. Okay, moving on. I'm on my drums now. Yeah. I could feel it. I'm not, I wish I had a clock. Um, let's talk about the musicians. Um, and what what did you think of them? You want to rate the performances of of the musicians? I have my favorite, but who was your favorite? I mean, I thought you know the, at the inaugural itself. Um, so you had uh, Lady Gaga and Garth Brooks and, and Jennifer Lopez, and I thought Jennifer Lopez did a did a bad job. Um, I went back and actually <laughs> listened to it, and and it was just that she was just outshone by Lady Gaga and even even Garth Brooks. I mean, she just is not a singer. <laughs> Lady Gaga when she pointed to the flag. Oh, and that and the flag was still there on top of the Capitol. Oh. I mean, that was yes. I mean, man, did she she was she was the stuff, man. And, you know, I'm mad at all of them for not having a mask right on so they could put right on as soon as they were done singing, especially Garth Brooks, who people who are country stars just loved what he did. And that's great. Um, but Lady Gaga, I had this moment throughout. I don't know if you saw someone tripped a little bit coming down the stairs. I want to say it was Hillary Clinton. I'm not sure. But for the rest of the time, I was like, don't fall to everybody. And then when Lady Gaga came out, I was like, don't blow it. You know, it was the it was the performer in me going, this is a really big moment. And my wife, Nicole, my way better half, looked at me and said, she's going to be just fine. Well, no, no, she wasn't just fine, honey. She was the best. That was with Marvin Gaye, 1983 NBA All-Star Game that or NBA Finals. I'm not sure which. That was the greatest rendition of our national anthem, most important rendition of our national anthem up there with Whitney Houston, the 1990 Super Bowl. But oh my well, God, but, but, but the most, but, but the most momentous, I, oh, I think, uh, remarkable uh, in our, in our lifetimes, I'm sure at the end of world war two and other times there were other momentous uh, renditions, but in our times at this point, I mean, she just absolutely grabbed that moment and conveyed what that anthem really should mean. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, Oh, uh, you know, on a, on a more, uh, on a different topic, uh, how about the redecoration of the Oval Office now that Joe Biden's in power? I thought that was fascinating and I was really interested to see, and I got a lot of information actually that like there are these, you, you know, all of the old stuff from every president goes into the Smithsonian or goes into this place. And basically you come in, you're the president, you can pick anybody's anything, Right. Yep. I remember that that Obama, when he came in because of the recession, he just said, just leave everything just as it is as a symbol that we, you know, we we got to tighten our belts. Well, I, I would not have been OK with that if Biden did that. He got rid of the little Diet Coke button. But most importantly, on the wall opposite the Resolute desk, which is also fascinating, they share this desk on the wall opposite. He has five portraits. He has on the top left, George Washington. I'm a fan, largely a fan. Below that, he has Abraham Lincoln. To the right of that, not in the center, he has Alexander Hamilton up top above Thomas Jefferson, which, you know, as a fan of Hamilton, I sort of enjoy. But the thing that struck me was the one in the middle. The biggest one was of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And why? Because like, 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 like Donald Trump looking at Andrew Jackson as his spirit animal. Mm-hmm. FDR has got to be Biden's spirit animal, and that yeah. is a transformational president, and that is what Biden is going to look up at and yeah. demand of himself. What did you think? I agree, too. I mean, when I looked at I, – I went through and I looked at some past presidents and what they had. No one had more than three portraits on that wall. Biden has five. <laughs> it's just a reminder that he is walking in the steps of so many others before him. 
And, and he's and, drawing, and Hamilton, drawing from their wisdom. Just going a little older, over Hamilton and Jefferson together is a reminder that even when the divides are great, we must find our way forward. God bless them. Yep. God bless our troops. Go ahead, Patrick. We're still going. Yeah, we got more hot takes. Yeah. Another moment, another moment that was, I think, was just a clear indication of a change in times was the press conference in the White House on Thursday with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I actually found this picture of that I have. I, I name dropped terribly. But when I did meet Anthony Fauci, I really do have a great picture. I'm going to send it to you and Justin after the show. Um of of Fauci and I that we took together. Uh, boy, did he look like a different man or what? I was yeah. surprised. I mean, watching and and all all tip of the cap to that press secretary. I'm sorry, I don't have her name offhand. Jen Pisaki. Thank you, sir. She has been doing such a fantastic job over the course of these two days. Even when the Fox News question was tricky, talking about the masks, I thought she handled that somewhat deftly. To go from Kaylee to to this new press secretary, is definitely needs to be mentioned. We're going to have truth. But, but in Fauci, that I mean, Fauci, Fauci unleashed well, here is just uh, as you said. It's just you know, I thought he was like a, a schoolgirl, you know, up there. Um, in terms of that, and he, and he, you know, obviously he didn't hold back, and and that's one of the, one of the reasons why. Remember, he's the most trusted man in America right now, is Dr. Anthony Fauci, and has been throughout this whole process. And this uh, isn't he eighty or just about eighty right now? No, not that old, not not yeah, quite but, that old. But but he's almost. He's he's getting close to it, and um, sticking around and sticking through this. Um, we may, we have named him in the past as our guardian uh, of the republic, and just his ability to stand through. And he's finally gotten where he, where he needs to be. And uh, it's just, um, it's good to have him on. I mean, the fact that he stuck through that entire Trump administration and never lost his center of purpose, never, never, never abided by what Trumpism was, um, and was able to get through that. Uh, just, it was just amazing blessing because now he, he can hit the ground running and to be clear, he is 80 years old. You're correct, sir. I think the picture of he and I is, is he's 76 at the time and he looks like he's in his fifties. Okay. Now we got to talk about this. I, I, I don't know how I feel about this, but you put it in here. So we're going to talk about it. Bernie Sanders meme. Go. Oh, come on, for fun. I, I think a lot of people are probably <laughs> sick of this meme. I'm, I was sick of it the day it happened. Yeah. And Nicole's always like, look, it's another one. There's like two that I fa- have found kind of funny, the Sopranos one, where they're all sitting there. But I don't know. Go ahead. Tell me. Well, I, I saw one. I mean, one that personally I, I like was uh, a meme with him on the beach with Chris Christie. Yes, that um, was fun. That, 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 that was, was a good fun. one, too. And then there were some really, like, really creative ones. Somebody put him in the uh, painting Nighthawks by uh, Edward Hopper. You know, that one that uh, is in the diner. With these people oh, yeah. Just, yeah. And, and um, then actually, now that I'm thinking of it, there's another funny one. See, I'm such a brat. Um, the the one of him as the Muppets, uh, Waldorf <laughs> and Statler, and he's yeah. Waldorf. That was pretty funny. And then yeah. the ghost one kind of creeped me out. I don't know if you saw that one with Demi Moore. Who, oh, no, I didn't see that one. Where she's uh, doing the clay and he's behind her with the mittens. It's, it, I guess it's pretty funny. I, I yeah. just. Uh, there was another one where it was, wasn't him. It was, uh, what's the baby Yoda's name? Um, um, Rogu, Rogu, yeah, Rogu, but it was Rogu with the mittens. <laughs> <laughs> they just cut the mittens. Bernie and put you know, there's something right about the fact that on inauguration day, you know, I looked at that picture of him and you wonder what he's feeling in that moment yeah. because there's a, there's gotta be a piece of him that thinks that he could have won. I don't think he could have won. And, and interestingly, Bush pulled over Cromwell. Is that his name? Cromwell? I said, my names are bad right now. From South Carolina, the one who put put Biden over the top. 
It's not Cromwell. Oh, 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 Jim Clyburn, Jim Clyburn. Clyburn, sorry. Clyburn, sorry. of course, Jim Clyburn. And he said, thank you, because without you, there's no way anybody beats Donald Trump. And I think that that's, that's sort of true. Now is my favorite time of the show, although this whole show, though a bit long, has been fantastic to do and uh, very much enjoyable. We are bringing in our, our producer, Justin Mason. Justin, for his 90 seconds. Go, Justin. Go. What did you think? Well, I, I, this has just been an absolute fantastic show guys so i mean uh, first kudos to you guys that's not what i meant but what do you Um, think is going on in 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 the country oh i mean i have a million different topics i'd love to just rattle off my head uh i mean but uh I'll, i'll limit it to two quick ones one uh seeing vice president harris uh being sworn in while my two year old daughter was sitting on my lap and my 10 year old daughter was sitting next to me was a, a truly emotional moment for me, one that I didn't expect uh, to have such power uh, over me. And so I just wanted to just give another uh, nod out there to the women uh, and the girls in this country because uh, 2021 is the start of a, another new day for, for women in this country, uh, and that is in large part due to Vice President Harris. Um uh, next, I just want to mention, you know, as the registered Republican on this program, there are a lot of people of my, you know, party that are feeling scared or angry. Um, and I, I want to echo something I believe I said in a previous episode. I, I believe Joe Biden is the right person for this time to bring this country back together. And uh, I have a lot of hope and faith uh, that. He will be able to, uh, you know, lessen that fear, lessen that anger, and bring us closer together as a nation. Great. And Patrick, wait before you go, Justin. Well, well, wait. I got. I have something before we go. Go away from Justin. Um, you know, my understanding. I just learned this that there is an organization in the fantasy baseball world that gives out awards, and among the hundreds of podcasts in that the fantasy baseball, Justin, that you were one of five nominated for best podcast. Is that true? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I was nominated for Best Podcast. I was nominated for uh, Best uh, Publication. Our very own Ian Khan also nominated for Best Podcast. So we are going <laughs> so, head so, oh, to wait head. Wait a second. So the two, 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 the two of you are, are among the five nominated for Best Podcast? Mm-hmm. We are two. There, oh. are 500, there are 500 fantasy baseball podcasts in the country. <laughs> Uh, Justin Justin Mason is the co-host of his very famous show with with Paul Spore, Jason Collette. If I'm leaving anybody out, please let me know. Um, and and other guests, I've guested on that show numerous times and enjoyed it always. They have won this award in the past. Yes, the FSWA award. They are they are champions of this award. And the podcast that I do with my friends Nando Defino and Derek Van Riper on the at the Athletic, where I do fantasy baseball rankings now, as well as this podcast. We were also nominated for the very first time. It's our se- it was our second season. We were not nominated year one, but we are nominated in year two. And so Justin and I are up against each other. And oh. uh, I, I, I can I can honestly say that if we don't win, um, I hope you guys win or Eno and Derek, mm-hmm. who you would have good feelings about Eno winning as well. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, the whole the whole category is filled with just really, really good people and uh, it is an honor to be nominated again. Uh, I will not concede this if I lose. 
<laughs> okay, that's great. Okay, so, so now we're going to congratulations to to both of you, and uh, I don't know who to to root for, but uh, hey, Justin, we'll talk uh, offline. Um, anyway, let's move on to uh, our segment that we recognize as Guardian of the Week. This yeah. is somebody who really put themselves out there. Usually, it's somebody in the political world who has put their political uh, aspirations to the back to to guard the republic. But Ian, you had a a nomination that you know I didn't even have to tell you that I agreed with. We knew that I was going to agree with. So go ahead. The Guardian of the Week, even though it was from a couple of weeks ago, is a man who has just gotten a promotion to the acting deputy Senate sergeant at arms and who led Kamala Harris uh, on the day of the inauguration. It is Officer Eugene Goodman, who may have single handedly guarded the Republic in a in a uh, in, in not a theoretical way, but in an actual way. His his bravery in taking on a mob of insurrectionists and the, the the key moment was the push as he got up to the second floor in, because he looks to his left, sees that the Senate is right there where Mike Pence is, gives a push at him and then leads them away towards other officers was a key moment in saving our republic. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and we could all see it. I mean, the, he this was clearly a conscious decision that he made to to basically rather than run for cover into that room. Um, to go in the opposite direction uh, and take the crowd with them. Uh, and uh, and as we're learning, uh, not every Capitol police officer was on board <laughs> with uh, protecting the Capitol. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, so he just stands out. Um, just incredible, just an incredible, credible person. I mean, the acts of bravery of, of many of these folks that we don't see, um, we happen to see this one, but it was one that clearly could have been the difference yeah, Eugene Goodman is a name that will live in American history. It will be in the history books. There will be a picture of him from that very moment. We're going to do something a little different. We're just going to share a couple of personal reflections um, from this past week. We know it's a long show, but I think it's a good show based on what Justin said. So hope you'll stick with us. Um, so real quick, Patrick, a couple, a couple of quick thoughts from both of us. Patrick, why don't you start and explain? We typically would have done an episode last week, but you kind of said you did, you didn't, you didn't have it last yeah, week. Yeah, I was just, um, in my head as we were kind of, you know, basically on the edge as we were waiting to make sure that noon on Wednesday actually happened. Um, and on top of it, I was also buried deep in all that authoritarian data, uh, pulled polling data that I, I, I mentioned earlier and that I was really trying to get my head around because I wanted to make sure that I got that out there just to, 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 to really get a sense of, you know, even as, as Joe Biden will be inaugurated, that we still have a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do. And my head was just really focused on that. I just that I really can't talk about this yet until I have a better sense that we made it to the other side. And now let me ask you, we, we didn't say this and we can't go deep into this, but where's the Republic right now? Where's the patient? I think the patient is breathing yeah. on its own. It's yeah, out of I, the ICU. It's out of the ICU. Still, still in the hospital. But it's sitting um, up in a chair. Wouldn't sitting up in a chair. It, it's going through rehab. So, yeah. you know, entered, entered, entered a rehab program. We were working the muscles, getting them, you know, how do they work again? You know, <laughs> reminding us uh, how it's things are supposed to work. We're there. There's possibilities of, of relapses. As I said, there's still, sure. there's still a disease that exists. 
inside the patient that hasn't fully disappeared yet. Um, but uh, yeah, we I had a nice you. blood transfusion, and yep. uh, the the Republic is sitting up straight. So now I'm going to share uh, my first of two thoughts. Is a, my a story that I wanted to share that actually relates partially to what Justin just talked about um, with Kamala Harris, and it wasn't Kamala, but about um, yeah, I think about two months ago or so, my older son, we were talking about something, and I, and he said, you know, Dad, I've never seen you cry, and I don't know what it was, and I said, really. You've never seen me cry? And he said, no, dad, I, I know. I've never, I've never watched you cry. I've never seen you cry. So I said, that, that sort of surprised open human. And so I said to him, I was like, all right, well, I'll point it out next time it happens. So about uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were watching the movie Soul, which is very good. It's not the greatest movie that anyone's ever seen. I mean, which is, so I, I just want to set the terms, but definitely worth watching if you have a Disney Plus subscription, definitely worth watching. And, you know, the summation of the movie happens and I cried a little bit. It wasn't like weeping or anything, but there were definitely tears going down my face. And he was sitting about five feet away from me. And I said, look, Ben, Ben, look, 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 look. And, and I like took some of the tears off my face and I rubbed it on and said, see? And he's like, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, got it, okay. And I was like, you know, as a father, I want to role model for my children that feelings are fine. Feelings are good. Crying is a positive thing. It doesn't show necessarily weakness. In some places, it can show great strength. So I'm watching Kamala Harris, and I'm watching the inauguration. I'm standing there, and the the oath of office begins to be implemented to her, and I just start to weep. And it it wasn't for the same reason having to do with women, though I think that had a part of it. But it was more like, oh man, we actually got it's actually happening. They can't stop it now. And I began to uncontrollably cry. And my son comes next to me and stands next to me and just hugs me for the whole time. And just hugs me really tight. And then something happened in between and then Biden happened and I was sort of done crying. I was like, you know, watching and making lunch for them, you know, life. So then lunch happens and they had to go back up to school because we pulled them for the hour that of the inauguration. It's just about to run up the steps. I said, hey, Ben. He said, yeah. I said, have you seen me cry now? And he goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he ran up the steps. So that was, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, I, I say that's, you know, there, there were emotions there. I mean, I didn't, I don't think I weeped openly. Um, but the tears came down a, a number of times just for, and for that very reason is that we got here mm-hmm. that, that we, 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 we have turned a corner it's not done yet, but we, we've turned a corner. And in fact, I think where, when I really realized how it had affected me emotionally was Thursday morning, my alarm woke me up. Now, I set my alarm every morning and have for the past few years and particularly the past few months. And I always have restless nights and wake up before the alarm. This is the first time that I can remember in a long time where the alarm actually woke me up out of a deep sleep. Yeah, I had a similar experience with that. Um, I definitely had a similar experience over these last two nights of sleeping differently and then waking up differently. And, you know, when you reach for your phone, I try to meditate before um, I, I do meditations in the morning and the afternoon. Um, and, but reaching for that phone and not being afraid of what fire has started, it really has made quite a difference. All right, Justin, come back on. Cause I'm going to share a story that I read, um, that, and remember it, it goes on a little longer than you think. So this is a story, uh, that I read that I wanted to share with everybody. One sunny day in January 2021, an old man approached the White House from across Pennsylvania Avenue, where he'd been sitting on a park bench. He spoke to the U.S. Marine standing guard and said, I would like to go in and meet with President Trump. 
The Marine looked at the man and said, sir, Mr. Trump is no longer president and no longer resides here. The old man said, okay, and walked away. The following day, the same man approached the White House and said to the same Marine, I would like to go in and meet with President Trump. The Marine repeated, sir, as I told you yesterday, Mr. Trump is no longer president and no longer resides here. The man thanked him and again just walked away. The third day, the old man approached the White House and spoke to the very same U.S. Marine, saying again, I would like to go in and meet with President Trump. The Marine, understandably irritated at this point, looked at the man and said, sir, this is the third day in a row you've been here asking to speak to Trump. I've told you each time he's no longer the president and he no longer resides here. Don't you get it? The old man looked at the Marine and said, oh, I understand. I just love hearing it. The Marine snapped to attention and said, see you tomorrow, sir. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. All right, wrap us up. That was a good kicker. Okay, so that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any comments or thoughts for the show, please reach out to us on Twitter at GuardiansOTR. And please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes on your favorite podcast app. And guys, listen up. Tell your friends and your family about our show. Send them a link to this very episode so they can get a taste of it and we can expand our audience. Luckily, our audience is expanding week to week, but let's expand it and expand it and expand it because in that way, we're going to get picked up by a larger website, which is going to give us the opportunity to actually grow ourselves, which would be very positive. So I'm actually doing an ask there in a different way than I've done it before. Also, if you want to catch up on our past episodes, check out our website at guardians-republic.com. Thanks for joining us, and we will be back with a new episode soon. See ya. Thanks, Justin. Justin.